So in everyone's favorite Star Wars movie, Episode 8, The Last Jedi, <laughs> some of you spend too much time on forums. That's what I just discovered. By, I know now who goes on forums based off of who laughed. Anyway, in The Last Jedi, the Skywalkers and company deal with the passing of the torch from the older generation who are dying off to the younger generation amidst what you have to call significant family drama. In the movie, Luke Skywalker famously says, no one's ever really gone. Now, that may have been a screenwriter's attempt at being profound, or maybe it was just that Disney wants to be able to bring back any marketable character when necessary. <laughs> Boba Fett, right? I mean, there you go. Our text tonight catalogs the death of two significant characters and the passing of the torch to the next generation in the family of faith. Now, of course, we Christians already know that death is not the end. That is a truth that even secular science is once again starting to admit. Recently, the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences published a piece from a team of physicians and researchers examining rarely studied phenomena at the time of physical death. Though clinical death is marked as the moment the heart stops beating, research shows that brain signals continue for at least 30 seconds after cardiac arrest. Researchers found the presence of gamma activity and electrical spikes when people are technically dying. This is typically a sign, they say, of, quote, heightened state of consciousness. The lead author of the piece writes this, the advent of CPR has shown us that death is not an absolute state. Now, the Bible has revealed for quite a long time that death is not an absolute state, not physical death on this earth. Death is a passageway from this life to the next, the ultimate life, where we are gathered among one of two groups of people. Now, tonight, Abraham and his son Ishmael will both be gathered into the afterlife while the family of faith lives on and God's work continues on the earth. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. Who is Keturah and where did she come from? When did she and Abraham get together? We are simply not told any of these details. Scholars fight it out and they can't agree, nor do they want to, whether she came on the scene before Sarah died or after. They can't agree over whether Abraham quote-unquote, should have been in a relationship with her or not. There's a rabbinical tradition that says that Keturah is actually Hagar, just with a, a new name. There's no basis for that at all, but you might come across that if you uh, read, you know, commentaries on this passage. And so we just don't know. The text doesn't give us those details, and it doesn't comment on their relationship. Apparently, it's not important for us to know. Or perhaps it's simply better for us to meditate on the situation and have the Lord speak to us through it. The Bible is not shy to, to make judgments on a situation when it wants to, right? When David falls into sin, you know, with Bathsheba, the Bible says, and this displeased the Lord. And, and so the Bible's not shy about pointing out sin, about calling out sin, uh, but sometimes it doesn't give a definitive uh, uh, judgment on whether something was positive or negative, whether it was endorsed or condemned by God. Instead, we might just think about the situation and, and see what we might glean from it. 
there's other better examples of this in the Bible. For example, in the book of Acts, that famous scene where Paul and Barnabas split ways. Should Paul have allowed John Mark to go with him on another missionary journey, or should Barnabas not have invited John Mark a second time after he had abandoned them? The Holy Spirit absolutely does not take a side in the book of Acts. And so we have to assume that there are things we can learn from either perspective, or at least just things that we can learn as we meditate on the situation as if we would have been there and what we might have thought. In a similar way, the Bible doesn't endorse or condemn Abraham's relationship with Keturah here. It simply gives us something to think about. Verse 2 says this, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's sons were the Asherim, Letishim, and Leumim. And Midian's sons were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldea. All these were sons of Keturah. A few of those names are recognizable to us uh, if you've been through the Old Testament. Midian, uh, that name pops up quite a few times in the Old Testament. For example, Moses' wife is a Midianite. As well as Sheba and Dedan, they show up especially in the book of Ezekiel later on. Ashurim here, you might think, oh, is that the same as the Assyrians? It's not. It's a similar word, but they're not the same Assyrians that we meet later in the Old Testament. Now, there are 16 descendants listed here. And in them, we see a very literal, very specific fulfillment of some of the promises God had already made to Abraham many years before. God had told Abraham that he would multiply Abraham greatly and that many nations would come from Abraham. And here at the end of his life, we see that that is proven true. In fact, more than that, in this passage, we see at least six specific promises that were truly and literally fulfilled for Abraham. Uh, There's the promise of multiplication and that many nations would come from him, as I referenced just a moment ago. But also, God had promised Abraham that he would live to an old age, and it happened, that even though he would produce many nations, his truest offspring would be traced through Isaac. And of course, that is true. He was told that Isaac would be his heir, his only heir, and that's true. He was told that Ishmael would produce 12 tribal leaders, and we'll see that that's true. We were told that Ishmael would settle near his relatives. We'll see that that really happened. All of these promises were specifically made, and they were particularly fulfilled all the way, completely. Now, there are other promises that have not yet been fully fulfilled, Uh, or that are being fulfilled as time goes on, that all the nations of the world are blessed through the work that God would do through Abraham's legacy, and that is the sending of the Messiah, and that promise is still being fulfilled as the gospel goes out to all places uh, all over the earth every day of every year here on planet earth. And so there's uh, still other promises that God made concerning the land that we recognize as Israel that would be given to his descendants, and that is still going to be fulfilled in its fullest sense in the kingdom of God. Um, But these promises are truly, literally fulfilled. God really keeps his promises, not halfway. He doesn't move the goalposts. He never fakes us out. He keeps all he has promised for this world, for Israel, for you, for me. Uh, without, I'm not trying to get particularly political here, but I remember when, th- our, when the president became president, right? He got into a little bit of a, uh, of a, he got into a little bit of bad press because I believe he had said, 
I'm going to send $2,000 checks out, but it really wasn't $2,000 checks. They dinged it down to whatever it was, right? And everybody was really mad. And they said, well, it was kind of like $2,000 checks because you combine it with the previous one, <laughs> right? And we say, yeah, you didn't really keep your promise. Or, or you, moved, you moved the boundaries of your promise to, to say that you kept it, but you didn't really keep it, right? And we get upset when politicians or leaders or bosses or parents or our friends do things like that. When they say, well, I, I kept my promise by doing this. And you say, yeah, you, that, that's not what you had said before. Now, God doesn't do that. And the problem is there are um, some, some tendencies within Christianity for us to say, well, God has done a switcheroo, right? There's a whole branch of Christianity that says the church has replaced Israel, right? If someone made us a promise here in the, the, the regular world and then, did, and then said this, yeah, I promised it to you, but I gave it to this guy over here because in my mind, he, you were my friend and now he's my friend. And so I said I would give it to you. And by giving it to him, it's the same thing because we're both friends. And we would say, you didn't keep your promise. You changed the arrangement. You changed the boundary lines. You, you, you're not being faithful to what you said you were going to do. And so God keeps his promises. He really keeps them. And we see here, look at all of these promises that God meticulously, particularly, individually kept to Abraham. And there are still promises that he has made to Abraham that have yet to be fulfilled. And so we have no reason whatsoever to think that they won't be specifically, literally, truly fulfilled in a real sense. Keturah's descendants settled in places that we identify today as Arabia and Syria. Some of them would have dealings with the children of Israel Generally, they would act in hostility towards them as the centuries unwound. Verse 5 says this, Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. And while he was still alive, he sent them eastward away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So in verse 1, Keturah is called a wife, but her legal status was that of a concubine, which means that her offspring would not have any claim or any right to any inheritance from their father. Now, we feel weird about that. Um, and be, and, and part of it is because who we are in Christ now and, and how the Lord has revealed more about what it means to show compassion, to show love, those sorts of things. And part of it is our modern view on family, right? It's, it's really different than it was in previous generations. In fact, not just ancient generations or ancient cultures, even pretty recent past generations. For example, I was surprised to learn that until 1969 in Germany, children born out of wedlock were not legally considered to even be related to their biological father. As far as the law was concerned, they had a right to sustenance but not inheritance. That was all the way till 1969. And there's some other examples like that in European history. And so things really were a lot different back then. Now, admittedly, we see this in the Old Testament. We think, man, what is Abraham doing with a concubine? This is weird. On top of that, in the Old Testament, we are heartbroken when we see any characters, especially ones that we revere and admire, sort of playing favorites with their kids, or at least looking like they're playing favorites with their kids. For example, we're going to be told pretty soon here in Genesis that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob, and they had this weird favorite son thing going, and it caused a lot of problems. And it's not a good thing in light of how God has taught us to love now that Christ has come and given us a new perspective on what it means to be a loving human being and what it means to be a spouse and to be a parent and to be a new creation in Christ. 
And so certainly not just excusing um, Abraham or some of these other characters taking concubines or multiple wives. Uh, polygamy was a regular part of, of uh, human experience, but it was never a good part of human experience. God never endorsed it. Uh, the first polygamist is Lamech back. We talked about him uh, back in the early chapters of Genesis. It was not part of God's plan. God made one man for one woman for them to be together forever. Uh, and, and so um, we have to cut these guys a little bit of slack in the sense that we don't say that's yeah, okay that, that Abraham had concubines, but the culture was dramatically different. At the same time, we also recognize this, that in the Old Testament, we are learning the story of God's faithfulness to deliver the Messiah through a specific line of people. There's a whole lot more to learn in the Old Testament, of course, but that is the great theme of the Bible, God reconciling man to himself by sending his son. And his son had to be sent into the world in a very specific way through a very specific people. That was the plan. And he sent his son through a specific nation, which came from a specific family, which from time to time would bottleneck down to one specific man at a time, right? Abraham was one guy, and he had no descendants. Isaac, for a, quite a while, is going to be one guy with no descendants. And our enemy, the devil, has wanted to derail the work of God from the beginning, from the establishment of humanity in the Garden of Eden. There was the devil saying, let me ruin this thing for everybody. Let me stop what God wants to do. And throughout the centuries, there has always been a concerted effort by the devil to destroy that one specific family through whom the Lord would bring the Messiah. And so it was important on a spiritual uh, sort of redemptive level that Isaac be protected and preserved. If you've read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that it's, a, it's often a problem when a bunch of sons of one powerful ruler are all kind of mingling together and then the dad dies, right? If you read the book of Judges, for example, uh, Gideon has 70 sons and then Gideon dies and then one of those sons says, how about I just kill all the rest of those sons? And he does, he kills them all except for one guy who gets away. And things like that happen frequently in this day and age. And so, uh, so it was important that Isaac be protected and preserved. Now, on a devotional level, this sending away of Keturah's sons gives us at least four things to think about. First, we are reminded, and this is important, that God the Father does not owe us anything. Okay, we are the, the children of the concubine in this sort of devotional thought exercise. God the Father doesn't owe you anything right? Because we are born dead in trespasses and sins. When we are born, we begin a war against God, the Bible explains. Even if you say, oh, I've lived a pretty good life, you, you, you and I both have lived in active rebellion against God in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our attitudes. Uh, a thrice holy God doesn't owe us even one single thing. In the end, uh, all we should be able to expect is to be sent away from his presence. Now, these sons of Keturah knew that they had no claim to anything that belonged to Abraham. That was, that was their culture. That was the law of the land. It would not have been a surprise to them that this was happening. And so we deserve nothing from God but to be sent away from his presence. In fact, that leads us to the second devotional thought. In the end, 
There are those who seem like they are children of God, but the Lord will ultimately say to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. And so this really happened, but it's also giving us a foreshadowing of something that is going to happen at the end of human history where there's going to be people who say, well, Lord, aren't we your children? And didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? Aren't we part of your family? And the Lord's going to say, I've never knew you and you need to depart from me. You need to leave because you're lawbreakers. Many play the part, but in reality, they are not members of the new covenant given by Jesus. Just as the sons of Keturah were not covenant sons like Isaac. And so they were sent away. And so too, those who do not do the will of the Father in heaven will be sent away from the kingdom, denied heaven's inheritance. But that leads us to a third devotional thought. Unlike the situation we're reading here, consider what God has done for sinners. We were like these sons. We have no right to heaven. We should be sent far away from the presence of the Father because only the true Son of promise deserves the glory, deserves the inheritance, deserves the prominence that is rightfully His. But what has God done? God the Father in His grace has adopted us. He says, you know what? You were strangers. You were at war with me. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were rebels. You were slaves to sin. And I'm going to pay the price so that you can be adopted. He redeemed us and adopted us by His good pleasure, the book of Galatians and Ephesians say. You see, in the ancient world, when a father adopted a son that he had with a slave or a concubine, then they were legitimized and they were made heirs in the household and they were made citizens of the city and given access to those things that previously they had no right to claim for themselves and they could never win for themselves. They couldn't say, well, I'll buy my way into the house. They couldn't do it. They couldn't say, I'll buy my way into Athenian citizenship. They couldn't do it. The father had to adopt them. But once he adopted them, now they're co-heirs. Now they're citizens. Now they are legitimized. He covers them with his fatherhood and makes them into things they could never be made on their own. And this is what God has done for us, right? No longer are we slaves. No longer are we outcasts. No longer are we just other people that don't have part in the covenant, now we are family members who enjoy the inheritance of the Father. And this is what God has done for us, not in spite of His only begotten Son. It's not that He did this in spite of Jesus, His only begotten Son, but Father and Son fully participated together, saying, how can we get as many people adopted into this family as we can? What price do we have to pay? We will pay it. We will do all the work. We will do all the effort. We will pay all the cost so that anyone who wants to be adopted can be adopted. And the fourth devotional thought here from this scene, God gives us everything, but he still has more to give. I do love how it's phrased. It says, Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac. And then it says, and he still gave gifts to those other sons. And so we have this sort of image of Abraham having so much that he can give everything and still give more. And that is a wonderful picture of our God. God's supplies of grace and peace and wisdom and help and direction, they cannot be exhausted and he will give them to us in full measure. And yet he keeps giving it to us more and more abundantly. He gives us everything that is required for life and godliness. And we can continually supplement our faith day by day with the more that he gives, more of himself, more of his goodness, more of his wisdom, more of his revelation. 
He doesn't say, well, I'm going to give you an ounce today, and if you really prove yourself, I'll give you more. He says, I am going to give you these things without measure, with full abundance. Your cup is going to run over. And guess what? Tomorrow I'm going to give more, and then the next day I'm going to give more. And as you come before me, I'm just going to keep pouring out more and more and more life more abundantly. Just overflowing joy, overflowing peace, overflowing uh, help and grace and all of these different things. He gives everything, and then he gives more. Verse 7 says, this is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. I was thinking about these long lifespans in the Old Testament. Here in the first half of Genesis in particular, we saw really long lifespans. You know, Abraham's, uh, Adam's living 900 plus years, and Methuselah's 969 years old. These huge, long lifespans. Abraham's sort of the tail end here of the, the long lifespan that is outlandish to us, 175 years. Now, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but young earth creationists give the earth of an age of about 6,000 years, give or take. Assuming the earth is about 6,000 years old, that means that Abraham was alive for 3% of all of human history. Adam was alive for 15% of all of human history. And so on the one hand, we think, man, everything is taking so long. It's all these thousands of years. We, we feel in one sense so detached from when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And yet it really is not that much time, particularly when we calibrate our minds to be thinking from a more eternal perspective, from the perspective of everlasting life in heaven. We tend to think in our own lives that God is taking too much time to accomplish His promises. But the days of our lives really are just a vapor in comparison to the unending span of eternity. The Apostle Paul very tenderly reminds us that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. We are reminded in the Bible that God is not slow. He is not slack. He is right on time. And it takes quite a while from our perspective for God to accomplish the work that he wants to do, especially when you factor in the fact that God's goal is to save as many people as possible. He says, I'm not willing that anyone should perish. God could have dealt with the sin issue in the Garden of Eden. And guess what? None of us would have existed. I'm glad I exist. God could have returned to earth 100 years ago and none of us would have existed. Even worse, God could have returned to earth 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and a bunch of us would be spending our eternity in hell rather than heaven, right? And so we are certainly glad on the one hand that God was willing to, to, to work this plan out through the date I was saved, right? And then we kind of look at our own lives and like, what's the Lord doing? He's taking so long. Why isn't this happening? I thought this was going to work out more quickly. And what's, what's God up to? Is he slow or slack concerning his promise? No, not at all. It's really not that much time at all. Remember what the Lord says, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. And so I don't know why, I just took comfort from thinking about some of those, those lifespans and the percentages of human history. When Abraham died here at the age of 175, Isaac would be 75 years old, and his twin boys, Jacob and Esau, would be 15 years old. And so they were undoubtedly at the funeral as well. Verse 8, he took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. Sometimes we talk about a person going out in a blaze of glory. Abraham went out in a blaze of contentment. Your version may simply say full. 
or full of years, and maybe of years is in italics, meaning that that was added by translators that those of years words are not in the original. What made his life full and contented? Was it that he had a bunch of sheep? Was it that he had a bunch of these sons that he was sending away? No, it was the Lord. Because Abraham walked with God and kept his heart near to the Lord, God was able to bring great things to Abraham's life and through Abraham's life. In chapter 24, Moses declared that the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And earlier we saw that even unbelievers looked at Abraham's life and they came to this conclusion, God is obviously with you, helping you in everything you do, Genesis 21. That's what gave this strange, vulnerable nomad peace in an unpredictable world. He certainly made mistakes. He made miscalculations. He had to circle back to, to uh, closer communion with God from time to time, just like we all do. But over the course of his life, what do we see? He walked with God. He made progress with God. He followed after God, and God led him to fullness and contentment. He, he just led him to a great finish, a great culmination of his earthly life. Commentators point out an important theological idea embedded in this verse. Abraham was gathered to his people, we're told, but it's important to note that Abraham was not buried with any of his ancestors. Only Sarah was in that tomb he was buried in. And so gathered to his people means that there is a life after this one. Of course, we know that as Christians, but we see it here all the way at the beginning of the Bible. There is a life after this one. Abraham took one last breath in 2000 BC Canaan, and he woke up in eternity. And there, when he stepped into fullness of life, where there were people waiting for him, Adam and Noah and Abel, Abel, who was the very first inhabitant of the abode we call Hades, by the way, it must have been an interesting moment uh, because there, you know, what we understand from uh, the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels and, and what's, what's explained in the Bible is that there's a place called Hades that was divided into two chambers. One side is a place of torment. One side is a place called paradise, right? And before Jesus died on the cross, if you were a believer and you died, you went into this place called paradise. And then when Jesus died, he descended, got all of those believing souls and brought them to heaven, right? And they're awaiting the resurrection uh, of their bodies. Okay, so th these two sides are there, right? But here's what I think is super interesting. It must have been an, a, a strange or just wonderful moment when Abraham showed up and somebody broke the news to him that this place was named after him. Because in the Bible, that place is called Abraham's bosom. Sometimes when people die, we name auditoriums after them or hospital wings or the bench in the park or stretches of the freeway, right? Abraham got down to paradise and someone would have had to tell him, welcome to Abraham's bosom. We're going to show you around. I just think that would have been amazing. But it speaks to us something of more than just kind of a funny moment. I think it speaks to us of the fact that God takes so much care to prepare a place for us. It reminds us of the fact that God is not just going to generically reward you for being his son or his daughter in eternity. You and I may not have a chamber named after us in eternity or a bench in a heavenly park, 
But you know what? On the other hand, we might. As I was thinking about this, you know, realizing and thinking about the fact that God does not love and reward us generically. He does it. Uh, he has a deep, personal, individualized affection for us. Think about it this way. We believe that it's been revealed in Scripture that God has specifically, specifically carved out a particular life that he wants you to walk in, right? He, that he has specifically prepared a spouse for you who were called to be married. That he specifically knit you in your mother's womb and knit your children in their mother's womb. And that he, he has all of these divine appointments for you. And that he has these good works that he has prepared beforehand so that you can walk in. Not just generic, you know, just go do good stuff. But that he sets up these incredible moments of providence that are just for you that he calls you by name, that he has the hairs of your head's number, and then you get to heaven. Just everybody's over there. Everybody's over there in the warehouse of heaven. Why would he do that? He's been preparing a place for you for thousands of earthly years, preparing a place for you. Not just a big trough we're going to eat out of in heaven, but a specific place for you. And if he has taken such great care to craft a life for you here in the smelliness of earth, what do you think he's going to do for you in eternity? Abraham went down to Abraham's bosom. And on top of that, what do we read in the, in the Revelation? In Revelation 21, we're being, we're being told what the new Jerusalem is like. And we see that the gates of the city are built on foundations, and those foundations each have the names of one of the apostles on it. And so I think it is altogether realistic to think that there is going to be something in your honor specifically in eternity because God loves you that much and because he delights in rewarding you and he wants to prepare such a grand entrance for each and every one of us. And so we need not think less of God's love for us and his desire for us and his future plans for us. We want to think more of those things. Why should we ever think less of God? that God would say, well, God doesn't really care about me enough to do something really awesome for me in eternity. He sent his own son to die for you, a hell-doomed sitter that, that he owed nothing to. God said, I'll become a man so that you can have the opportunity to be saved. And I just found this a great encouragement for really how great eternity with the Lord is going to be. Verse 9, his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hethite. This was the field that Abraham bought from the Hethites. Abraham was buried there with his wife Sarah. I wish we knew more about this dynamic. At age 89, Ishmael the exile returns to join with Isaac in burying their dad. The other sons do not seem to be there. Now, by this point, Ishmael was an established clan leader, a powerful archer. Perhaps he arrived with a strong entourage, whereas Isaac, well, he had a wife and two teenage boys who didn't get along very well. Uh, but you've maybe been to some uncomfortable family funerals. I wonder if this was one or if it was more of a happy meeting. We don't know. Verse 11, after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Beer Lahai Roy. After Abraham's death, I'm guessing Isaac, well, it would have been natural for him to feel a little exposed. From one perspective, he was the weakest among his brothers. He's the second son who usurped the firstborn. You know how people talk. He was no strong archer like Ishmael. He never battled against Chedorlaomer and his armies. 
He had no face-to-face sit-downs with the angel of the Lord like his dad. And so from, from the earthly perspective, he was probably the weakest of the group. But we don't have to worry about building ourselves, strengthening ourselves. Instead, we walk with the Lord and he strengthens us. He blesses us. He builds us up in whatever ways he knows we need. Verse 12, these are the family records of Abraham's son, Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. We're reminded of several things here. First, that Ishmael was not who God had appointed for his purposes. Ishmael represents for us the work of the flesh, man's scheme to do God's job for him. Never a good plan. Secondly, we're reminded that even though he was the son of the slave, even though he was the son of the flesh, God had not failed to reach out to him lovingly. God involved himself in Ishmael's life and and made promises to him as well. He saved Ishmael's life there in the desert. He did not reserve grace only for Isaac and turn his back on everyone else. He showered it on Ishmael. There is common grace that our incredible God pours out on all people. Jesus described it this way. He said, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He doesn't have to. He he could do like he did for a very limited time in the land of Egypt where plagues were falling on the Egyptians, but not in the land of Goshen where his people were. But God is a God of unfailing grace and goodness, even to the undeserving. Thank God, because we were undeserving. And it doesn't mean that everyone receives his saving grace because that is received through faith in Jesus. But God shows kindness to unbelievers as well. Verse 13, these are the names of Ishmael's sons. Their names, according to the family records, are Nebaioth, Ishmael's firstborn, then Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphesh, and Kedema. These are Ishmael's sons, and these are their names by their settlements and encampments, 12 leaders of their clans. The prophecy that Ishmael would father 12 tribal leaders was literally fulfilled. As I said, God is in charge of the flow of human history. He is in charge of the rise and fall of clans and kingdoms. That does not negate human free will, but God knows and in many cases has reported to us future history and his will cannot fail. Verse 17, this is the length of Ishmael's life, 137 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt as you go toward Ashur. He stayed near all his relatives. Will we see Ishmael in eternity? I'm not sure. It causes us to think about where we will be gathered when we pass from this life to the next. There are only two peoples where we can be gathered to, the saved or the lost, It gives our lives great purpose to consider where we're headed and how we want to be received when we get there. Do we want to be saved as through fire? Paul describes it that way. No, we want to be be entering into eternity with all the fullness of contentment and reward that God wants for us. We want to finish well the way Abraham finished well. He wasn't a perfect man. He didn't do everything right. He, he let God down sometimes because, because he's human and he had a sin nature just like we do. But he finished well. We seem to live in a time when many Christians are not finishing well, at least not many prominent Christians. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but it should be a natural development as we walk with the Lord. Or really, I should say, it should be the expected supernatural culmination of our lives as we follow the Lord and submit to his guidance and his commands. When we go the way of Abraham, we can take great comfort in the facts that life, 
greater than we've ever known is waiting for us on the other side and that we can trust God to care for those loved ones we leave behind. We may be going into the grave and into eternity, but God is not going to abandon those left behind. He's always got more to give. He's always got more provision and more grace and more help. He always keeps his promises. He will lead us home and gather us into glory at just the right time.